Well, we've been making our way through John 18 and 19, and now our text. Finally, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, and we'll make our way toward that text as well. I want to get our thoughts thinking in this direction, however. First, I want to do just a a brief little history reminder. The late 17th century and all of the 18th century is regarded by historians as the age of reason, more popularly known as the Enlightenment. Philosophically, what this meant was that human reason and self-sought knowledge was now seen as the sole means by which humanity could be improved at any level. In his 1784 essay called What is Enlightenment?, the philosopher Immanuel Kant, he summed up the mood of the world in one motto. He said, quote, dare to know, have courage to use your own reason. Now, the Enlightenment did produce many great inventions and scientific discoveries which still benefit humanity today. Things like the thermometer, bifocals, the pendulum clock, the odometer, the steam engine, and then, of course, huge leaps forward in medicine. But there was a price to be paid because the enlightenment also produced a disdain for anything miraculous anything divine anything that spoke of god because now humanity not god was supreme and in fact this bled into the church of jesus christ and many in the church now sought to make certain that christianity fit into the mold of scientific theory It led to theological liberalism, which denies miracles, denies anything that could be miraculous. And it led to theistic evolution, which says that God used evolution over billions of years to make all things in direct opposition to Scripture. And so now even the church was being impacted by the Enlightenment. One of the major works which formed the thinking of the Enlightenment was the 1689 essay by English philosopher John Locke. It was called An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. By the way, John Locke is nicknamed the father of liberalism because he wrote the first systematic definition and defense of political liberalism. But to this important essay, here was his point. He said that knowledge is gained only by human experience and not by accessing some sort of outside truth. That all knowledge can be discovered and studied through human effort. Today, the spiritual effects of the Enlightenment are still prevalent. Just last year, in an article in Scientific American called Can Science Rule Out God? The author concluded that to understand the origin of all things, we must first understand the laws of nature and physics. So in other words, if you fail science in high school, you can't understand anything, apparently. And to understand human meaning, the meaning of life, he says, science is the answer. Here's his conclusion. He says, quote, To spur humanity's search for meaning, we should prioritize the funding of advanced telescopes and other scientific instruments that can provide the needed data to researchers studying fundamental physics. And listen to this. And maybe this effort will lead to breakthroughs in theology as well. That's nothing more than 21st century enlightenment. By the way, what does the Bible say about the proper use of telescopes 
Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. You might say, well, does the Bible speak to the Enlightenment? It does, actually. The Bible does speak to so-called human enlightenment. The author of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament came to the right conclusion. He said in Ecclesiastes 8, beginning in verse 16, When I applied my heart to know wisdom, does that sound familiar? That's the enlightenment. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Well, let's put that to the test. Let's see if our enlightenment has helped us. If all knowledge can be known and experienced, it seems like 300 years after the start of the enlightenment, we should have made a lot of progress and we should be really, really knowledgeable on the most mysterious thing in all of human experience, our greatest enemy, we should know all there is to know about death. What sort of empirical data do we have? What have we compiled scientifically about what happens when you die? How much data do we have? None. None whatsoever. After 300 years of scientific breakthroughs, those who claim the greatest knowledge are still just guessing by blind faith in absolutely nothing but their own intellect What will happen to them when they personally die? They don't know. In fact, Albert Einstein called those who believe in life after death, quote, feeble souls with fear or absurd egoism. Feeble souls. You see, the problem with trying to study life after death scientifically is that there hasn't been a scientist yet who survived his own death. No scientist has come back and said, Look, I I have an article here I've written because I've been gone for several years into the world of the dead. Now, someone might say, well, what about near-death experiences? What about out-of-body experiences? Well, how do you know those are reliable? How, How do you know? You don't. As a matter of fact, a study from the University of Kentucky concluded that a phenomenon called rapid eye movement intrusion causes hallucinations and the feeling of being physically detached from your body when in the midst of a traumatic event such as apparent brain death. And some of you might say, well, if you're brain dead, then it must be a real experience. No, they showed in the study that these, these, this phenomenon is triggered by the brain stem. And the brain stem operates almost independently from the higher brain. So even those in science are saying that those out-of-body experiences, those near-death experiences are just your brain stem playing tricks on you. So you don't know. And so clearly the Enlightenment has not helped us cope with human death. So what do we have to have? What must we have? We must have outside revelation that is reliable. We must have God tell us what is what. You want to have reliable information? Well, how about God not only telling us, how about God coming to earth in the form of a man to tell us? And how about this? God in the form of a man dying and then conquering death so that all who believe in him can do the same. You want to know what happens when you die? Then you must trust the only human being to have ever eternally survived his own death. You must trust the first person ever permanently resurrected from the dead, not after 10 minutes of no heartbeat, 
but after three days in a sealed tomb with mortal wounds to his body. And that person is, of course, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And here's the information that he's given, the outside, the revelation that he's given. I want to give you a synopsis, a a summary of what we've studied in John chapter 18 and 19 and now into John 20. We've been putting this together over a number of weeks. Here's what Jesus Christ has told us in summary form. Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled his father's plan for his suffering. Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered himself as a substitute on your behalf. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment. And even your best intentions are not good enough. Thus, you need the payment for your sin Christ offers. For Christ has a kingdom not of this world and offers you a part in it. But to be part of that kingdom, you must believe Christ suffered on your behalf. Christ's suffering carried the sorrow of your sins. You must believe that Christ's death is your only option and hope of salvation. You must believe that Christ truly died. And today, you must believe he was truly raised from the dead, thus completing payment for your sin. That's John 18, 19, and 20 in summary form. Sometimes I've preached in the past on how to know that the resurrection was real. I don't want to take a lot of time on that today, but I will point this out. So many people witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's really inane and illogical to even question it as a historical fact. This isn't a case of me asking you to take one man's word for it. After the resurrection, the New Testament records 10 appearances of the resurrected Christ. Mary Magdalene, to other women, he appeared to Peter. He appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to 10 of his disciples in the upper room. He appeared to 11 of his disciples in the upper room. The seventh one, he appeared to seven of his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Number eight, he appeared to over 500 people to hear him speak. And by the way, the Bible, at the time that book was written, said almost all of those 500 are still alive. Go ask them. Number nine, he appeared to his half-brother, James. And finally, he appeared to all of his disciples as they watched him ascend into heaven. And so the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is unassailable. It's airtight. But our text today gives us just a little slice, a little portion of all those appearances and reveals the drama of the resurrection from the vantage point of just a few of those witnesses. And so John arranges this text of John chapter 20 biographically. He cuts from one character to another to another. So we'll honor that outline. And what I want to do for you is just simply highlight the experiences of these major players who are witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. What did they experience? Well, first, we'll call this one the the faulty assumption of Mary Magdalene. The faulty assumption of Mary Magdalene. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and so we do not know where they have laid him. All four Gospels introduce the account of the resurrection by specifying the first day of the week. And so now it's a new era. It's early on a Sunday morning. 
Mary started from her house while it was dark. And by the time she arrived at the tomb, Mark 16 says that the sun had now barely risen. Mary Magdalene is called that because she was from the village of Magdala. She was supremely devoted to Jesus, both in his life and in his death. And here she is. We, we, we saw her earlier at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. And now she comes as the very first person to the tomb of Jesus Christ after Sabbath to anoint his body with spices, as other gospels tell us. This cave-like tomb had been sealed with a, a large stone door and sealed by the order of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Now we see here that Mary of Magdala, she didn't look in the tomb. She immediately ran away before she understood what had happened. And some feel that maybe she assumed that grave robbers had desecrated the tomb. It is true that grave robbery was so common in this day that just a few years later, Emperor Claudius would institute capital punishment for any who destroyed or desecrated tombs. But probably more likely, it's somebody she knows of. Because she said they have taken the Lord, not somebody has taken the Lord. These are people she knows of. So when she's referring to they, she is speaking either of the Roman authorities themselves or perhaps the Jewish authorities with the Roman governor's permission that they've somehow moved Jesus' body for some reason. And so she ran and she burst in telling John, he's called in verse 2, the other disciple, and Peter, that the tomb of Jesus has been desecrated. His, his body has been taken and hidden somewhere. This is her assumption. Now, how do we know what she's not thinking? Well, we can tell from the text that it hasn't even entered her mind that Jesus might be raised from the dead. It's beyond comprehension to her. Now, Mary Magdalene loves and is devoted to Christ but we could use her as an example, as almost a symbol in a very real way of being where the unbeliever begins. Not really comprehending that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, all of you have been reading the news this week. I'm sure I have been as well. And I'm, I'm kind of astounded at how the news media just nonchalantly reports that Christians meet on Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Just like it's a holiday, like Memorial Day or Independence Day. But I doubt that most media personalities who report on this day, on this holiday, stop to think about what they're saying. We're celebrating that Jesus was dead and he got up. Most don't think about that. Not only did he get up, but he got up in a glorified body in which he could now instantly go from place to place and didn't need to use doors anymore. So an important step for the unbeliever is to come face to face with the fact of the resurrection of Christ. That Jesus isn't just some historical figure who has appeared on the cover of Time magazine 400,000 times. He is God in the flesh. And in his body, he is currently at this moment very much alive. He is seated at the right hand of his father as the first resurrected human being in heaven. And so let the faulty assumption of Mary Magdalene warn you to believe. There's another major player in this drama. He had his own experience. We'll call this one the first hope of Peter. The first hope of Peter. Look with me at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. 
The grammar here in Greek indicates that they left immediately. Peter and John took off. Now, let's talk about Peter and John. I I think we need to look at these guys. They were close. They'd been together with Jesus for three and a half years, day and night. Before that, they had known each other for years in the northern province of Galilee. They're named together in the New Testament about 20 times. They often ministered together later in the book of Acts. And they were very close, very much like brothers would be. For example, Peter knew that John had the ear of the Lord Jesus in a very unique way. John is called the disciple that the Lord loved. And the night Jesus would be betrayed, Peter asked John to ask Jesus who the betrayer would be. He's like, John, ask Jesus. It's like a brother would do. We see another example when Jesus was being tried in the court of the high priest. John, who was a family friend of the high priest family, he was allowed in and he got Peter into the courtyard as well to listen. But like brothers, they also had no problem fighting, conflicting, pointing fingers at one another. After the resurrection, when Jesus told Peter that he would die by crucifixion, Peter's first response was basically, and this is my paraphrase, how about John? How about he die by crucifixion also? Like brothers would do. And like close brothers, there were times when all bets were off and may the best man win. And this is one of those times in verse 4. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John left Peter to eat Jerusalem dust in his wake. Apparently Peter was the less athletic of the two and he reached the tomb huffing and puffing while John had already arrived. Peter has been described as quick of tongue and slow of foot. John beat Peter to the tomb. I don't know about you, but logically to me, you would think that John would just go in. But he stopped. He stopped short, verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. He didn't go in. He just looked. But he saw the linen cloths used to wrap the, the body of Jesus. We don't know why he didn't go in. He may have feared ceremonial defilement. He may not have wanted to be the first one in there, or he may not have just been ready for what he might see. But in any case, there's a, there's a non-comprehension with John. In fact, the Greek word that says he saw the linen cloths just means he looked at it. It doesn't mean he comprehended it. It just means that his eyes were looking in that direction. But in verse 6, when Peter saw the linen cloths, it's a different word used in Greek, which means he gazed at it. He studied it. He pondered it. He understood it. It's the word that you use when you say you're an eyewitness to something. And so while, while John is paralyzed by some unknown fear, Peter comes wheezing up to the tomb. And in typical fashion, he bounds right by John and he stoops down and goes in. And by the way, we should note that the tomb was opened not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw, comprehended, studied, pondered, gazed. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, we have a very important detail here. The wrapping clothes were empty. And there's also a face cloth, a separate 
cloth. This will be wrapped around the head and the face of the deceased to hold the, the mouth and the chin closed in death. Jesus' resurrection body had simply passed through the grave wrapping in the same way he later appeared in the locked room, locked room with his disciples. But this face cloth says it was folded. It's a word that literally means wrapped or rolled or twisted. The, the body wrapping would have started here at the chest and the arms, while the face wrapping was a separate, completely separate wrapping around the head. Why is this detail here that it was folded? Well, the head wrapping, if it's suddenly emptied of the head, would simply collapse down and look like it had been neatly rolled or folded. It's not that Jesus was trying to leave the tomb better than he found it. It's that he simply passed through it and his grave clothes collapsed into a folded state. Listen, this was not the work of grave robbers or the Romans or the Jewish authorities of the, or the disciples. Nobody stole the body. And by the way, that's pretty easily proven logically. I'll give you a couple of reasons we know this. First of all, there were no treasures buried with Jesus. There was only one thing of value in the grave, and that was his grave clothes, and they're still there. So it can't be grave robbers. The Jewish leaders certainly didn't steal the body because that would hurt their cause, not help it, by making it look like Jesus had been raised. They wanted to see his body. The only people who would be interested in stealing the body of Jesus would be his disciples in order to give the appearance of a resurrection. But if the disciples had stolen the body when Mary Magdalene came to them, they would have just said, calm down, don't worry about it. We got this covered. But they were shocked. They, they took off running to the tomb. And by the way, if they did steal the body, then all the disciples lived a lie for the next several decades. With the exception of John himself, every disciple of Christ died a martyr's death and so if the disciples stole the body not only did they live for a lie they died for a lie not possible so if nobody stole the body of jesus there's only one alternative and that is that jesus prediction that he would be raised from the dead came true and this was the first hope for Peter. As a matter of fact, Luke 24, 34 records that Jesus appeared personally to Peter in a private meeting, thus completing Peter's hope that Christ was indeed resurrected. Listen, the implication of a resurrected Jesus Christ is obvious. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then maybe, maybe, just maybe he could help me. I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to be raised from the dead. And that's the good news because it's absolutely correct to make that implication. Jesus himself said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus promised in John six forty, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And here's the promise, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you're still in that stage of first hope, that maybe if Jesus was raised from the dead, then he can help me. Yes, yes, and again, yes, it's true. You have a Savior who has gone ahead. He has died. He's been resurrected and thus proving he can do the same for you and do the same for me. 
When we come to another major player in this drama, he had his own experience. We'll call this one the completed faith of John. The completed faith of John. Earlier this morning, I read to you from Mark 8, 9, and 10, and that was by design. I wanted to show you that even Jesus' own disciples were slow to believe. They were slow to fully understand that Jesus would die and then be raised from the dead. We read Mark chapter 8, where Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must suffer, he must be rejected by Israel's leadership and die, and that he would be raised three days later. And you remember what Peter and his genius did. He came to Jesus, pulled him aside, and chastised him. And Jesus called him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Then in Mark 9, again, Jesus said he would be killed and raised three days later. Verse 32 said the disciples didn't understand. They were afraid to ask questions. And in Mark 10, for the third time in Mark's gospel, Jesus said he would be killed and raised three days later. They don't get it. And in fact, they think just the opposite. They think that Jesus is about to take the throne of Israel. And what do they do? They start jockeying for a position. Hey, Jesus, can I be first? Can I be second? They still didn't comprehend that Jesus would have to die for the sins of the world and then be raised. But now, for the Apostle John, this is the culminating moment. Verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. John saw and he believed. John didn't see Jesus. He just saw the empty tomb. This word that says he believed, it's a word that means an act of trusting something on the basis of its truthfulness and its reliability. And this is the major theme of John's gospel, seeing and believing but not necessarily the way you might think. Jesus said on one occasion, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. John chapter 4. John chapter 6, the very crowd that Jesus had just fed miraculously, the crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children, the very next day, they asked him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And Jesus doesn't say this, but if I were there, I would say, are you kidding me? He just fed 20,000 plus people miraculously. After showing Thomas the wounds on his hands and side after his resurrection, Thomas believed after seeing. Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Listen, the essence of true faith in Christ is not Seeing is believing. True faith is the opposite. It is believing is seeing. And that belief, that faith is given to you as a gift from God. Ephesians 2 says this. And that faith now opens your spiritual eyes to see the resurrected Lord. How did John come to full belief? Well, he explains in verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now he is just now to that point, And he says why he hadn't believed in the past. They didn't understand the scriptures. Even after three and a half years of teaching from Jesus. And after at least the three times that he told them that he was coming to Jerusalem to die. And would be raised from the dead. They still hadn't gotten it. And John admits here he said we didn't understand the Bible. Well what didn't they understand? They didn't understand, for example, the prophecy of Christ in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 11. 
Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that is Christ, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What are those two verses saying? Those are rewards for a man who is alive. A reward for a resurrected Jesus Christ for his faithfulness. John and the others didn't understand Psalm 16, verse 10. Speaking of Christ. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. And certainly they didn't understand the ancient prophecy of Job, chapter 19, verse 25, when Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. But now he believed. And John knew it. John lived the rest of his life in this knowledge. You can have great confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, I want you to have confidence. I want to give you three quick reasons. First of all, his death was a real physical death. We covered this on Good Friday in some detail. It was a real physical death. It's not possible that it could be anything else. Second reason you can have great confidence in his resurrection are the eyewitness accounts. I've already spoken of this. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people on 10 recorded occasions over and over and over and over again. More than overwhelming evidence. Now, how about this reason for confidence? How about the testimony of the enemies of Christ? What would they say? Well, Matthew 28 records that the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers who had been guarding the tomb, they had no clue where the body of Jesus had gone. And so the Jews bribed the guards to spread the story that the disciples had stolen the body. So the Jews knew they didn't have the body of Jesus. The Romans knew they didn't have the body of Jesus. And they both knew that the disciples didn't have the body of Jesus. Even Jesus' enemies were trying to backpedal and cover up, what? The resurrection. Now, I don't have to connect the dots for you. I think it's obvious that any man who says he can save me from my sins and also predicts his own death, predicts his own resurrection, that he will conquer death, predicting who would kill him and how many days later he would rise from the dead, this is the man in whom I will place confidence that he will raise me from the dead. Him and only him. By the way, Whether the disciples believe, verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. You know there's something that did not happen. Neither Peter or John took the grave clothes with them. They didn't take any mementos. They left them there. Why? Well, they're not interested in collecting relics. They believe that Jesus was alive. They were interested in him and him alone. You, You don't need memorabilia when the person you're remembering is still there. So they left it. Listen, just like John, this is the testimony of every Christian that God graciously brings you to a moment of decision, to this eternal intersection, the time in which you sense this may be the most important moment of your life, the moment when you must believe. And now we return to a previous major player in this drama. In her experience, we'll call this one the genuine love 
of Mary Magdalene. The genuine love of Mary Magdalene. Now we come back to her in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. The disciples went back to their homes, but Mary Magdalene is weeping outside the tomb. Luke chapter 8 tells us who she is. Luke 8 tells us the story of Mary Magdalene. She was a tortured woman, a desperate woman. She was a woman who was plagued with seven demons. She was living a tormented existence under the complete power of her own sin and the satanic power over her. But Jesus healed her. Jesus forgave her of her sins and he made her a child of the living God. Never again to be enslaved by sin, enslaved by the devil, but always to be a follower of Christ. And when she stooped low to look in the tomb, verse 12 And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary isn't just weeping because of the death of Christ, although certainly there's great grief there, but she's weeping because of the disappearance of the body. And just as human beings, we all understand this, don't we? From the earliest times of human history, the bodies of our dead loved ones form the final connection that we have with them. And to be robbed of that final connection adds so much trauma, so much agony to really an already tragic loss. And the genuine love of Mary here is so evident. She was the first one to the tomb. Her life had been completely changed by the power and the love and the grace and the kindness and the mercy of the Lord Jesus, and now he was gone. Her grief must have been almost unimaginable. What she thought was her greatest hope was now dead. And so she stooped. And she put her head into the entrance of the tomb. And she saw two angels seated on the the platform on which Jesus' body had been And what a setup for the joy that she would soon have. They said, woman, why are you weeping? Well, they knew why she was weeping. These are like parents who wink at each other as as they tell their small children, "I, I wonder what you're getting for Christmas. I wonder if you'll like it. Because they know great joy is about to come upon her. Now, Mary Magdalene makes us smile, doesn't she? Did you notice something? She seems to have such an innocent heart because... She isn't phased in the least that two angels are speaking to her. They're dressed in gleaming white. They just happen to be seated inside the tomb of Christ. Often in the Bible, the appearance of an angel causes great trembling and fear and even falling down. But not Mary. She answers them like she sees angels seated in the tomb every day of her life. And she just starts a conversation with them. I have to wonder if those two angels were kind of looking at each other going, she's not even afraid. But their question is more than just a setup for her coming joy. It really serves as a call for her to dry her tears. She has no reason to weep. And that, of course, brings us to the major player in this drama. We'll call this the sweet comfort of Jesus. The sweet comfort of Jesus. In verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. 
Often in his post-resurrection appearances, Jesus isn't recognized immediately. That is by his design. So far, Mary has seen the, the stone rolled away. She's seen two angels inside the tomb instead of the body of Jesus. And now, Jesus himself speaking to her, but she's still unaware of what's happened. And yet she continues seeking and pressing on with her search. Verse 14 says she turned around and saw Jesus. We know from the rest of the text that in her grief, she turned away from him. She had this short conversation facing away from Jesus, not having recognized him. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Did you notice that Jesus repeats the question of the angels? Why are you weeping? But his second question now gets her focused on a new hope. He says, Whom are you seeking? Not whose body are you looking for? Not who do you think stole the body? Not I'm sorry for your loss, but whom? What a live person are you looking for? This is very important. When he asked his first question, he said, Woman, why are you weeping? He calls her woman. It's not a derogatory term. It's just a general term that Jesus even used with his own mother in that culture. It was something like miss or ma'am. It was a general form of address. But now, and this has been called by some, the greatest single, powerful, one-word statement in all of the Bible because it changed everything. He calls her by name. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. She turned and said, Rabbani. It's a a heightened form of rabbi, teacher. Rabbi is anyone's teacher, but Rabbani means, oh, my teacher, oh, my master. She recognized him and she said it in Aramaic. That's the language she grew up with, the, the language of the common people. She instinctively broke into her first language. Those of you who are bilingual, you know that when you're excited, you break into your first language. And that's what she did. It was an emotional moment. In fact, it was so emotional that apparently Mary dove at him and embraced him and clung to him. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God in your God. And we have to point this out. This is the resurrected Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And his relationship with his disciples has now changed. For the next 40 days, they'll undergo a transition time in which they can't revert to their former familiar pattern of relating to Jesus during his early ministry. There's going to be somewhat of an awkwardness between the resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Christ. Now, it's a very natural reaction for Mary to to cling to Christ, to not lose what she lost before. But the relationship is different now. Not only is he the God-man, he is the resurrected Savior about to ascend to glory and about to send the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus said to her, no doubt, with gentleness and compassion, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
Now he gives instructions that she's to go tell the disciples, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus wants her to send the message that he's alive, he won't be here long, and and he's expressing his unity with them. My father and your father, my God and your God, the cross and the resurrection has now united them with Christ. Now we should point out a small difference here, a good lesson about how we're to regard Christ. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 28 records several other women, followers of Christ, running from the tomb to tell the disciples that Jesus was risen. Matthew 28, 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. So what's the difference between Mary Magdalene clinging to Jesus and the women who were clinging to the feet of Jesus? Well, Mary Magdalene clung to Jesus apparently in a sense of never letting, letting him go. But these women took hold of his feet to worship him, to rightly regard him as Lord, as Master, as God. But back to Mary. What sweet, sweet comfort it was to her when Jesus called her name. That changed everything. That moment must have just been almost magical to her. This is the same, same sweet comfort that we have from the resurrected Lord. Did you know that? John 10, verse 3, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. At some point in your life, if you are a believer in Christ, the Lord Jesus called your name and gave you the sweet comfort that because he is alive, you also will live. The Enlightenment deceived humanity into believing that they were now in the light of self-knowledge. But the Bible says that humanity dwells in spiritual darkness, but the darkness is, is parted at the coming of Christ. Matthew 4.16 says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's the, it's the apex, it's the apogee, it's the summit, it's the capstone, it's the, the high point of the Bible. And the Bible's solution to sin. A perfect Savior who gave his life in payment for your sin and is raised to life now proving that the debt has been fully discharged. The debt fully paid. 1 Corinthians 15.54 says that death is swallowed up in victory. Hebrews 2.10 says that Christ will bring many sons to glory because he made our salvation perfect through his suffering. Hebrews 2.15 says that he's destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The very next verse says that Christ has delivered us from the slavery of death. Colossians 2.14 says that Christ canceled the debt of sin you owed and has been nailed to the cross. The very next verse says that Christ has disarmed and humiliated the deadly demonic forces of the devil by triumphing over them in resurrection. Did you catch all that? Death swallowed up in victory. Many sons to glory. He perfects our salvation through his suffering. He's destroyed the power of death. He's delivered us from the slavery of death. He's canceled the debt of sin. He's nailed our sin to the cross. He's disarmed the deadly authorities. He's humiliated the deadly authorities. And he's triumphed over them in what? In his resurrection. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is his Bright as the sun. 
and it forces the darkness to retreat and illumines the way to God Himself. As a matter of fact, the resurrection of Christ is so radical, so unique, that this drama, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a lot of out-of-breath people. In verse 2, Mary ran from the tomb. Verse 4, Peter and John were running together. Verse 4, John outran Peter. Matthew 28, verse 8, other women who came to the tomb later ran to tell the disciples. This is unprecedented. Their master has been raised from the dead. And the proof is best summarized in Mary's statement in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This statement, I have seen the Lord, that is a statement every human being will make in one of two settings. Either. When you see Christ face to face and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, because you have repented of your sins, you have come to faith in Christ, you have believed on his death and his resurrection, you have brought no so-called good works of your own, you have brought only your sin and your degradation and your humiliation, and you have come crawling to the cross asking for mercy, and he's given it to you. When you see Christ face to face, he will say, well done. Or you will say, I have seen the Lord. As Revelation 20 describes it, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and the dead were judged. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You will see the Lord, but here's how I'm praying that you will see the Lord. Second Corinthians four, verse six says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what happens as a result of that? Colossians 1.3 says, he has transferred us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That is true enlightenment. Not given by human knowledge, but given by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this clear, clear word. We can believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It's so obvious. It's so understandable. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because he has conquered death, because he has paid the penalty for sin and that payment has been proven to be completed, not only because he said it is finished on the cross, but because when he was brought to life, it it proved that all the eternal weight of sin that is owed to us because of our transgression has been poured on him and the payment completed. And because of this, if we would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ on the day that someone carries us to our graves, we may trust that there will be a day when He will call our names and He will raise us up just as He Himself has been raised. We cannot come to this understanding on our own. It had to be revealed to us by You. And so we give You thanks, our Father, for revealing to us the way of salvation, the way through death and into life. 
And it is because of. It is in the name of. And it is to the glory of. The Lord Jesus Christ. Our risen Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen.